Hello and welcome. My name is Josh Singh. I'm your host of the Racial Healing Podcast. Welcome. I'm really glad you're here. I started this podcast because I had to do something. I struggled for a long time to figure out what to do about racism. I've always been an ally. I've done my own work around overcoming my own pain and trauma around racism. And I've always known that that is not really enough. So I started this podcast for people to share their stories, to be heard, and for you, the listener, to witness those stories. And my hope is that we can all heal our hearts and our souls from listening and being part of this podcast together. So thank you for being here. Please consider subscribing, and I hope you enjoyed today's interview. So I asked you, who are you? You said you are uh, the oldest child from a black family in the South Suburbs. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. So who I am, uh, my day job is in sales. I'm in technology sales. I sell for an IT company. Uh, We do hardware, software, application development. I also um, am a uh, man in recovery. And I will be coming up on seven years of um, f- free from alcohol and gambling. Uh, Congratulations. Am, thank you. Yeah. I am a dad. My son is actually going to, he just turned seven. So I got sober the same year he was born, five weeks after he was born, which is awesome. Um, I am uh, uh, a, a initiated man. I have gone through the Mankind Project August of 2018. Ashe. Ashe. Um, and I actually have, because I, <laughs> I couldn't get enough, I did another group, Victories, and I got initiated through that. And so I've had these two men, um, these men's uh, weekends, and they were phenomenal, um, both life changing in their own right. Um, and, uh, you know, most importantly, I think. You know, I'm a man of, of, of faith, of spirituality. I believe in God. I believe um, that there is a power greater than ourselves, spirit of the universe. Um, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, so I have a lot of Christian dogma in mm-hmm. my background. But I, um, my my God is bigger than American Christianity. Mm. And so um, American Christianity kept black people in slavery. Mm. And white people used the Bible for their own gain. So mm. my Christianity is way bigger than American Christianity. So I'm guessing that's not a lesson you learned in church. Where did you learn that? I've learned that through my own studies, mm. through um, theology reading, um, through understanding how the history. Uh, I am a. I love and thirst for knowledge. So that, something that I'm. I'm a book nerd, but I'm also a marathoner. <laughs> uh, I love sports, but I um, enjoyed understanding the process uh, or learning about something new. And I. I tend to gravitate towards uh, philosophy and. Um, some psychology but philosophy and history um theology that's i've always been bent towards that whereas uh other people have science or whatever their their you know thing that they favor to want to learn more about um you know the study of being if you will Mm. so Mm. yeah yeah so i'm a lot of things um and tonight i'm you know (laughs) here with you Uh having a conversation right on yeah. yeah yeah So uh, tell me about where you grew up. So I grew up 
um, in, well, was born at St. Joseph's Hospital, which I think is now St. Joseph's Presence Hospital up by DePaul University. Okay, so but on the north, north side, side of Chicago. I was born on the north side, but I, have, I was raised on the south side all of my childhood. Okay. First in the uh, neighborhood north of Beverly. So we lived at 8201 Hamilton, which was off of Damon. And we went to this church called Emmanuel Baptist Church. Well, Reverend L.K. Curry was the pastor for 40 some odd years. Mm. Um, and they, that church was founded in 1974. I was born in 76. My parents went just after it was open in 74. And so I was a South Sider. And then we moved out to the South Burbs, to the South Suburbs. Um, and so in the South Burbs, I grew up in this little town called Glenwood. It's nestled between Linwood and Homewood, about two miles from the state border. So we used to go to Indiana for gas a lot. Okay. <laughs> so how old were you when you moved from the South Side to the South Suburbs? Six years old. Okay. Yes. So do you remember life in on the South Side of, of Chicago? Yes. You do? Yes. Yeah, what, I had, what do you remember from that time? Um, I had a couple of friends that grew up that down the street. They were similar in age. Okay. Carl and Kim. Um, they're same age as my sister and I. I was, yeah. oh, actually, Carl was a year older than me, but we were in the same grade because he was, uh, well, actually, he had an October, November birthday. And then Kim was, I think, a year older than my sister, Valerie. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So I had friends on the street, uh -huh. and then we, my parents sent us to Emmanuel at the time, had a Christian school. So I went there from, for um, uh, preschool and kindergarten. And what were the racial demographics like on the South Side? Um, about 90% African American. 90%? Any yeah. other 10%? Uh, well, they were they were 90% of my neighborhood. If you went a little further south than Beverly, okay. Beverly was still pretty, pretty multiracial, majority South Side Irish, <laughs> if you will, um, in Beverly. Got so, it. But my neighborhood was predominantly black. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. and when you think back to that time being a little boy in a in a mostly black neighborhood, what comes up for you? Um, at that time, it was joy, it was happiness. I mean, yeah. there were kids around the block um, that we all played together. Uh, I remember, you know, I didn't feel like I was. Um, I felt comfortable in my own skin. I do remember an incident where I mistakenly um, hit a girl with the bat. Mm. And I remember that being like, I was like, I don't know why I did that. Like I was like five or six years old, five or four or five years old. She was crying. I was scared. My dad spanked me. My parents believed in spanking. I don't spank my son, but that's another topic. <laughs> it's another conversation. But, um, but they spanked me. And I remember consciously thinking like, ooh, I don't want to do those types of things to get in trouble like that. Right. So from a little, from that, point on i tried to minimize my getting into trouble with things mm. um with you know and and yet i had these things that i could be sneaky about like all humans can be right but i didn't get into trouble i got one detention in, in high school and maybe one or two detentions in grade school got it so yeah. um so that incident woke me to the fact that ooh, there's consequences and then being the only black child or being being um being not only but rather being one of many african-american kids in the neighborhood i was 
pretty comfortable in my own skin at five, six years old. Got it. But it, went, it got different in Glenwood. Yeah, so what, what, <laughs> what happened then? So when we moved to Glenwood, uh, I was in my first grade, and I had, it was a multicultural neighborhood in the sense that I had, we had um, Beth Ying or Beth Yin from Asia. I think, I don't think she was Chinese descent. We had a kid from Turkey. We had a couple of Latino kids, and then there was about a... Um, 10 to 15 african-american kids per classroom so so about half about half, yeah so yeah maybe maybe half or just under half were african-american kids that i went to first grade with and from that from there on if you will so got it so i grew up in a multicultural environment to the to the best of the south suburban ability but i do i'm, I'm grateful that i had exposure to white friends at an early age in first grade so what do you mean by that to the best of the south suburban ability i mean that um and actually if you do studies park forest was a conscious park city of park forest was very conscious about moving in multicultural diversity in its city whereas glenwood i think it just was by osmosis right african-americans wanted to migrate to nicer homes be out of the city and i have to pay parking all those things and so it just kind of naturally flowed that people moved into glenwood compared to park forest being very progressive about we want people from all races to be represented in our mm -hmm. community so that's what i mean to the best of its abilities and, and, and as a kid did you feel that that feel welcome you mean or what i mean yeah as a kid um kenny simmons was my friend my best friend kenny simmons kenny simmons he was and a kenny, white kid okay from from you say Glenwood. kenny simmons like i know him <laughs> nah, you don't i don't know, know kenny simmons <laughs> okay so uh -huh. i just it, it's it was he was the first kid that welcomed me to the new area i was it was a new school i had I'm sure I had anxiety and fears around being a new kid. It wasn't a manual Christian school where all the kids were black and the teachers were black and they were teaching Christian principles. I was at public school, right? I'm using quotations that your people can't see it. Uh -huh. Maybe they can. But, um, you know, so I was at this public school and it was, you know, 60% white, you know, 30% black or 20% black and then, you know, about 10% other. And Kenny Simmons became my best friend. Mm. And I will tell you what was interesting, Josh. My parents said to me, and, and let me back up. So I am a child of a musician. My dad played drums with Buddy Guy. Wow. In Chicago in the 60s. Amazing. Right? Yeah. And my middle name is Charles Kenyatta. So my middle name comes from him and Buddy going to Kenya and touring in Kenya and my when he came back my he convinced my mom to name our their first child charles kenyatta wow and my dad's name is charles so i'm like the seventh charles in my family but the third in my my lineage so my grandfather charles price my dad and now me we stopped out my son his name's lincoln <laughs> but what was interesting about my parents take on me being friends with kenny simmons was they said you will be friends with him now but his parents will teach him that black people are not to be friends with mm. that that it's okay to be friends with them at a little, little younger age but you're not going to be long-term friends with him and so from a very early stage you know this race this podcast we're talking about race and racism i learned from a very early age that i was different from my white friends that i was not going to be looked upon as equal perhaps and as a matter of fact 
my dad drove that home a lot as a black man. He drove home this that you're not going to be seen as an equal. As an equal, he drove home that I had to outthink, out hustle, outsmart, and be better than just to be counted for. And even when I got there, I still wouldn't be able to have a seat at the table. And so he raised me, and he's a brilliant man. And he, you know, his tools were he grew up in Mississippi in the 50s and 60s. My mom grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana in the 50s and 60s. They both migrated. We've heard about the great migration to Chicago, mm-hmm. Detroit, yep. New York. My parents are two of the people that came to Chicago in the late 60s. They've been here 50 years now. Wow. And they came, must have came right to the south side. They went to the south side. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, you know what's really cool about my parents? They met on the red line. My dad oh, saw yeah. my mom. He's like, I got to ask her That's out. the one. <laughs> <laughs> and they've been together. It'll uh-huh. be 50 years next August, God Ooh, willing. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. That's pretty cool. 50 years marriage is not the norm. That's no joke. Yes. Mm-hmm. So how do you feel about your dad saying that to you? Um, it, it was hard. I, I it was hard I, at that time. It was hard as a kid to, to, I mean, it, it threw me in a self image crisis. It threw me in a self worth crisis. And I didn't know how to explain that at the time. What is a self worth crisis? My worth is predicated on how much I, how much I do externally, how many praises I get for A's and B's, how hard I work, how well mannered a kid I am, how I, work my ass off to not be looked upon as you know this stupid nigger right this 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 insignificant like whatever and i don't mean to drop the n-word but i'm just like that's that's the thought process that we we were taught to not be you know be viewed by the white man as this you know throwaway you know black person throwaway color person Mm -hmm. right and so my dad instilled in me that I had to work really hard mm. to get whatever I wanted out of life and then some to prove my worth to sit at the table. Mm. And that was in pound. I mean, you know, he, there was a time where he said, I came home with three A's and three B's in the sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And I was very proud of that. I, first time I had no C's on my report card. Right. And I worked my ass off for that. I'm not, um, my intellect i'm not a high iq person i'm a probably above average about average or above average but i worked my tail off right mm-hmm. and i was so sad and that he was disappointed mm-hmm. he was disappointed that i had gotten a's three a's and three b's and he said well you know it might be okay for other families to have three a's and three b's but in my house my children get all a's mm. i'm thinking <laughs> you need to graduate college dude <laughs> Are you going to tell me to get all A's when you didn't finish what you started? Mm. You left Jackson State to go play drums, and he did well for himself, but you know he didn't finish college. Mm. So I was, um, I had from a very young age, my worth was based on my accomplishments. That's what I was trying to say, and or my worth was based on the amount of success I had to the world, mm. and I hustled really hard to do that to live up to that. For a long, long time, mm. so about fifteen months ago. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I want to get to that sure. in a minute here sure. about sure. what happened fifteen months ago. Yeah. So, this, you know, your dad saying that not what I hear is not good enough. Not good enough, exactly. Yeah. When you were feeling so proud, how did that impact you? 
So interesting enough, I never got three A's or three B's again. I never really focused on school after that. I made a conscious decision at 12 years old that I was going to focus on sports, um, music, and that if I couldn't make the grade, then F him. Mm. (laughs) Screw him. I'm going to do what I care to do. I see. And I literally took years to overcome, you know, that 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 decision as a big decision to make it, and you'd be surprised as decisions we make as kids yeah you know right yeah so your dad was trying to prepare you to be a successful black man yes he wanted me to be thoroughgood marshall right i see the ability to eat as he says to eat collard greens and 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 you know fried pork chop and cut it up with you know the african-americans uh, black blacks in the community and be able to sit at the white man's table and talk law. So mm-hmm. my dad worked for law. So after he left the music career, he worked for law firms mm-hmm. and in that he worked in the copy room and he really elevated himself. My mm-hmm. dad, his great F like he's, he's always been able to pull himself out of situations by willpower. And so he was trying to instill that to me. Right. Right. And I totally appreciate it because it's how I finished three marathons. Right. Mm. By willpower and a little luck probably too. But, um, but Mike, to answer your question, um, you know, he, he was trying to help me set the table for how to be successful on the world stage, if you will. Right. And he, again, to the best of his ability. So, so when you were a teenager during this time, um, how did you feel about being black? I mean, you, from what you share, I hear that you were, it was, obviously you knew you were black. Yes. <laughs> How did you feel about it? Um, resentful, angry. Towards? God. Towards God. Towards God. Towards, towards society as a whole for how they treated black people. Um, Why towards God? Um, well, you got to remember, it was a Baptist home. We grew up, I went to Baptist church, we, you know, we, and I went to Catholic high school, which is a whole nother. And so I had religion being fed down my throat of God is sovereign. God is love. God is all these things. And I'm thinking, well, if God is all these things, why the hell did you make Jews and blacks and Latinos and other people less than the superior race of white men? Mm. Right. And I had a resentment for a long time for you know 20 some odd 30, almost 30 years of why would god make us the lesser group in society hmm. because that's the programming i got from my dad and my mom and other african-american communities i'll give you an example josh in 1983 we were in jackson mississippi for a reunion family reunion we went to the holiday Inn. it was a nice holiday Inn. I was six, seven years old. I'm sorry, 1987. So I was 11 years old. Mm -hmm. And we went to this Holiday Inn in Jackson. And there was a janitor, custodian man there, custodial person there, African-American, probably in his 50s. He was gray hair, so 50s or 60s. And he says, boy, what you doing here? You're not supposed to be here. I said, sir, our room is right upstairs. Mm. He was not used to African-Americans staying in this holiday inn on the nicer side of town 
but my dad was also a small business owner. After he left those law firms, he started his own business. He made really good money back in the 80s, so we could stay where the hell we wanted for the mm. most part, especially mm-hmm. in Jackson, Mississippi. We could stay at a Holiday Inn, mm-hmm. and that wasn't, I mean, we've stayed at five-star hotels, right? But mm-hmm. we stayed at the Holiday Inn, and yet this African-American, this black man tells me I'm not supposed to be there. Mm. So it's not just my parents telling me i'm not supposed to i don't measure up or that i have to work hard to measure up i get the programming from society as a whole and or from people locally and it and, and the stories can, i could go on about that so if yeah. you want <laughs> well I, I the two stories you've shared so far are from black men yes black men yes. are, are the, uh, so far at least have been the, the two people who gave you your father and this janitor yes. the message of you got to measure up you got to measure up yes what kind of messages did you get from white folks um that's an interesting one because i didn't i don't think And never got negative messages. Not a lot of negative messages early on. Yeah. Um, I got, you know what? So I was. I think I was. When I did testing, I'm a I'm a visual learner, and I'm not an auditory or some person you know kinetic, right? I'm a, a visual. I have to see things, and mm-hmm. I learn. I learn by seeing. So yeah. anytime I got received test, and it was either audio or you know we had to like use our hands for it. I. I didn't test well at that. But if they did it out of the book, I would test well. So for me, the way I related to white people is they were saying I was dumb because they were always in the beginning in my early childhood, second, third, fourth, and fifth grade, they would have me in remedial classes. Not like I wasn't dumb, but I was in the B class, not the A class. And I always, so I got this image, and, and I don't think it was necessarily them, them being white that they were doing this. It was just that, I, I, I internalized it as these white teachers think that I'm not going to make the grade because not all of them understood my learning. Um, I wouldn't say disability, but my learning skill, my mm-hmm. ability to learn. Whereas other, and, and the classes that were visual, I did great. The classes mm-hmm. that were, it was all lecture. I didn't do so well. I see. Yeah. But what I took from that is that they think we're dumb too. Right, I made we, that story. We up. black kids, we black kids are dumb too, except for a few smart black kids. So right, there's kind of these different categories. Yeah, yeah. But, so, but the default is the default is that black people are stupid. I see. Is what I took away from that. Yeah. Um, and do you see that as consistent with what your dad was trying to tell you uh, about I how think, white folks do? I think I I made some judgments that they were they were not giving us a fair shot. That perhaps maybe they were just, you know, dismissing us just because of whatever views they had about black men or black boys yeah. at the time. And do you still see it that way? In pockets around the country, sure. Yeah. Sure. I think that there are um, parts of the country where uh, whites dismiss blacks unintentionally. They just don't, they're not even conscious of the dismissal that's occurring what when you say can you give an example of what that of something you've seen i give you a personal example please so in 2009 10 years ago almost 10 years ago in december of 2009 i was at a local borders bookstore borders close right they were a bookstore and they had a cafe right mm-hmm. and i went into borders and i bought 
a two dollar coffee and gave the cash register a hundred dollar bill right got it she said oh we don't use the marker i just have to have my manager verify this bill the manager comes over to the cashier looks at the bill looks at me looks at the bill whispers in her ear whatever she he whispered in her ear she got me to stay there she kept the hundred dollar bill and then they uh, and told me i could sit down in the cafe area Mind you, I'm reading like triathlon magazines. I have a sweatshirt on that says we'll run for chocolate. I'm wearing jeans. I'm not looking like this, whatever image they might have of black people. Right. And this is where I mean by dismiss. He calls the Wheaton police. I live in Wheaton. He calls the Wheaton police. They come in. They ask me about the hundred dollar bill. I tell him, well, it came from the bank. <laughs> it came from Chase Bank. I don't know what, you know, they arrested me, took me out of Wheaton. Uh, out of the, the borders, took me to the Wheaton police station, verified the bill, and then said, oh, Mr. Hicks, I'm really, really sorry. We've had people um, have been um, passing fake $100 bills in the strip area, in the strip mall area. And so, you know, you fit the description, so we had to verify, right? So what I mean by dismissing, or in this instance, you know, preconceived judgments or cognitive bias. I've heard that word used, right? This, this manager had a bias towards me, right? And so my, to, to connect them, my parents told me that that could happen, that, that people would dismiss, have pre, you know, uh, have bias prejudices, and they would just, you know, not even think twice. And that was the first time that had ever happened to me. And mm -hmm. I was 33 years old and I was floored. Because I had gone on to mostly white high schools, white colleges, I dated white women, and so I had really assimilated into like white culture living in the Western Burbs, and yet me going to living in white culture and Western Burbs, going to white churches, trusting, trying to worship a God and do right by my neighbors, here I am, you know, being uh, presumed guilty into proven innocent. So that came at at age thirty three. Yes, and it was a big shock. It was huge, because I had only heard about it. Right. And in the times that I heard about it, I had, I had made, I had softened the blow for my white friends. Like, oh well, you guys aren't like that, or oh well, you know, I wish some black men would just pull their pants up and they should act right. Mm. Right. I had gone on this track of. And because of my pastor, Reverend L.K. Curry, he said, black men don't need to wear earrings. It's like being a slave again. Black people shouldn't wear earrings. I had a lot of different programming from Christianity, from my parents, that if I wanted to be counted on, be respected, I had to walk a certain way, talk a certain way, act I a see. certain way. Yeah. And what kind of way, how would you describe that way? Like the white man. Like the white man. Wear wingtip shoes, a mm. good solid blue suit. Wear a white shirt. Wear a nice tie. Not tie. Not, not to this day. I never wear orange. You never wear orange. I never wear orange. Was that part of the programming? Not to wear orange. It was part of don't be too loud and obnoxious. Right. Be conservative. Don't be made fun of when you go out in public. And have you inhibited yourself besides not wearing orange? <sighs> um. I mean, I've. I mean, I do wear purple. 
<laughs> so I do wear, you know, certain clothes. But I, yes, I mean, I've moved away from the, yeah. you know, that stereotype, or if you will, like don't don't or not stereotype. I've moved away from um, my the programming to live my life, right? To be consciously woke and whatever that I want to do. Where so I, you know, in talking with other black men. I hear stories like the one you told that happened in the borders happen all the time. Sure. All the time. And I'm curious why you think it didn't happen to you until age 33. Well, so part of the other program. So what we oftentimes um, don't talk about within the black community, in my opinion, my estimation is is that um, colorism, right? There's racism and then there's colorism. What's colorism? I don't have a Webster dictionary about it, but What's I the will, Charles Hicks the Charles, definition. It is the it is the dismissal of other dismissal or being snooty or holding your head up, thinking you're better than or that they're worse than by the lighter they are to the darker they are. So if you're a light-skinned black person mm -hmm. and you're a little bit closer to the master, if you got a touch of the master, that's a saying in the black community, right? It means that your great-great-grandparents were, were, were integrated with their white slave masters or you're somebody in the family married a white person. If you've got a touch of the master, then in your light-skinned complexion, you are more accepted in the white community mm. compared to if you're a dark skin and I'm pretty dark African American, uh -huh. yep. a dark black guy. You so first off, you will be considered a field slave, right? Because they couldn't see you in the in the plantation home, so they had all the really dark black slaves in the in the plantation, and the, the lighter skin or the more appealing slaves would be in the in the house, right? I mean that's a that's stuff we talked about in the African American in, in my own home. Mm -hmm. My parents said, because you're a darker skinned black kid, you're gonna be picked on. And I was actually picked on. We didn't even talk about the whole why I migrated or not not migrated, why I integrated with white kids. Because I got picked on for being darker by other black by kids. other black kids. That's colorism. Got it. Black kids picking on other black kids just for the darker pigmentation. Mm. And I had a lot of pain around that. I was called names like Blackie, Charco, Oreo, because I had white friends. So they say you're black on the outside, but you're white on the inside. Yeah. I got called Zebra, Shaka Zulu, really, really and mean these things. these are by other black kids? Other black kids in second, third, fourth grade. Yeah. Until we outgrew it. And it, was, it left some severe scars. I see. Yeah. So, you know, hearing your story, it sounds like it was easier to be around white folks. It was just different. And then if you were, you know, had your own characteristics about you funny or I mean, I was I'm, I'm an extrovert. So I like being around people. So to have my black friends say these hurtful things was really hard. And then, uh, you know, and my love language is quality time. You know, I so I like spending time with people and I like being around people i yeah. get energy from being around people right so by the time i got to high school and i had kids in band that i was practicing i played drums in high school and they it just became easier it became a lot easier 
to hang out with my white friends. By sophomore year, I was pretty much had majority white friends and minimal African-American black friends. And there were black kids around. There were black kids at Marion, yeah. I went to Marion Catholic High School. There were black kids at at Marion, yes. And I and I was friends with them. I mean, I I got my license, and I'd be driving around. One of, you know, be five of us black. But I I told the line of keeping black friends. I was doing what my dad had suggested: walk with the white friends, keep your black friends, right? Be able to cut it up, cut it up meaning make laugh, joke, fun, be silly, right? With your black friends, uh-huh. and be able to assimilate with your white friends. Yeah, and so I. You know, listen to um, Nirvana and and you know uh, Pearl Jam and Dave Matthews and all these bands that I got introduced to in the early nineties. Yeah, that I was not listening and to. And did you enjoy it, those those bands? And I started liking them. Yeah, and I mean, I'm a music person anyway. I, I played drums like my dad. I played drums in high school. We played classical music and we did the jazz band and pep band for baseball or for basketball games. And so I really had, and I and one of the things I would say is I had a pretty big appetite for learning and exploring, and, and so. The assimilation for me to have majority white friends was not as hard as it might have been for African-American kids who felt like they got pushed behind or left behind by their black friends mm-hmm. and all they had were white, these white friends. You were for able me, to kind of move. Yeah, because I loved everything. I yeah. mean, to this day, I mean, I, I, I have a huge palate for food and I have a huge palate for life. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? I mean, I love the mountains. I love the beach. I love you know a nice golf course and i'm okay with you know uh hanging out i mean used to, i used to be okay with hanging out at a dive bar right uh, and i didn't really care yeah so so you you're you're currently living in wheaton still living in wheaton that's about the whitest place i know <laughs> yes it is <laughs> within 100 miles of chicago uh, maybe Glen Allen might give it oh, around yeah. for its money. Okay. Probably Hinsdale. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. So we have some. We have some refugees from Somalia. Oh, okay. We do have African Americans. Do, do you Wheaton. get? Do you get coded as a refugee? No, no. I don't. I don't look Ethiopian or okay. Somalia. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. So tell me what it's like living out there. It's great, man. You love it. It's great. Uh-huh. I mean, I so in the midst of learning how to navigate this world. I mean, being true to my values, I like the space. I love that I have p- paths to run on. Uh-huh. I am a huge outdoor person, so I'm close to the Morton Arboretum where I'm a member and have been for eight years. Uh-huh. Um, and I like my amenities. I have to be honest. I'm spoiled. Starbucks, Car- Costco, Trader Joe's. I love my amenities. Got it. So I compromise the diversity for the amenities, which I'm working on that. I'm thinking Oak Park is my my move. I like see. I'm I'm trying to keep my amenities and have more diversity. <laughs> but as I said, you know, 14 months ago, 15 months ago, 14 and a half months ago, things shifted. So but, so yeah, let's talk about that. What happened 15 months ago? Awesome. Uh, happy to talk about it. So I was introduced by my my very very dear friend Gary. Um, who I love, he said, you got to go to Mankind Project. And I was like, what is all this about? He's like, if you got to get a scholarship, get a scholarship, but you got to go to Mankind Project. Okay. It is life-changing. And I'm like, all right, I don't even know what this is all about, but sure, I'll, I'll sign up. So I called the center, the Chicago executive, and he got me in, and I, was, I signed up for August of 2018's MKP weekend. The weekend's called New Warrior Training Adventure. And on that weekend, um, 
the best way I can describe it is I made peace with little Charles. I stopped having a resentment towards God for being born on the wrong side of humanity. And I fully embraced all of me. My in MKP we say shadow, shadow being Carl Jung, a big thing Carl Jung talks about. The shadow, things I want to repress, deny, hide behind, mm-hmm. and where and and how it comes out. And I I I I brought all of that, all of me, good and bad, all of the defects of character as we say around the tables of recovery sin if you will if you want to say use christianity i i looked at all the different parts of my life and i fully integrated for the first time in my life i became woke (laughs) for the first time in my life truly conscious of who i am what i'm about and what it is that i want to create for my life that's beautiful that's beautiful charles Thank yeah, you. it sounds like an incredible weekend. It was. I should do one of those. <laughs> yeah, you should. <laughs> so, so what does that what does that mean for your racial identity? So, we've talked about how you've you know felt comfortable around white folks. At times, you've it's been harder, more complicated to be around black folks, and you became woke. What is woke for for you? So, woke is understanding that we that I have choices. And I don't have to be resentful or angry at people groups, but rather I can embrace all of my heritage. In other words, I can be conscious of the life I want to create, which is to have my family, my African-American friends, and any new African-American black people that I meet on the journey to be in community with them, right? Because I was wounded and scarred, and I also had all of this programming messaging from my family, my parents, and even my aunts and uncles. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have to listen to any of that, and I didn't have to believe any of that. And I and I could heal around that, and I could talk about it, you know, to those who would listen about the healing that's taken place. From and you know, I should back up and say I did a lot of therapy um, uh, from 2010 to to. And now I see her twice a year. My therapist, Holly, she's amazing. Twice but a year. Twice a year now. Wow. I'm, I'm, I don't. I mean, I don't. I mean, maybe three times a year. But uh-huh. like we, I used to go a week, twice yeah. a month at least. Got it. <laughs> so, uh-huh. um, and she's really elated that I did the, the Mankind Project. Got she, it. yeah, she yeah. encouraged it actually. Um, so, I don't have to. What that looks like being woke is that I am conscious of who I am and what I'm creating and what I want from my life. And I don't have to let story hold me back. And what I mean by story is the story I tell myself, the story people tell themselves, the story that the world tells us, mm. that I can create the my mission, that I can create a world of healing and safety by modeling vulnerability, compassion, kindness, and love. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's pretty awesome, actually. Yeah. It's freeing. Uh-huh. I don't have to contemplate or premeditate or ponder or like what all the things you go through when you walk into a situation. I have the ability to be free. And I think that's actually the real word. Yeah. As I'm now free to be me. Free that's to be you. Free to be me. Yeah, that sums it up better. I'm, I'm, I had to get there <laughs> to talk about it. but that's what, And that's what it's been. The last 14 months, I've been free to be me. I mentioned to you, I 
I've done some storytelling. I've gone to the mountains. Like, black men go to mountains? Yeah, black men go to mountains. I love the mountains. I don't know why. I just do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? It works for me. Uh-huh. You know? And I love me some collard greens and black eyed peas. And mm-hmm. I love me some watermelon and all the other stereotypes that the world might have for us. Yeah, sure. I love those things. But I am not those things. And I'm not these things. I'm just Charles. Mm-hmm. Period. Mm-hmm. You, don't, you, you can't box me. Right? And I shouldn't box you. And we shouldn't box each other. Yet with racism, we put you in a box and we say you have to be this way. And I'll give you an example. I was with a friend on Sunday. We were driving. And I was playing for her some music that I liked. I won't go into the group because I don't want to be judged. I mean, it doesn't matter. I was listening to the Avid Brothers, actually. Say, I went to the, say who? I? The Avid Brothers. They're Avid. called the Avid Brothers. Yeah. yeah. You have to tell me who. The, who, who They're who. like this bluegrass, folksy, okay. funk, folk rock band. Okay. Gotcha. And I actually saw them in concert last month. Avid Brothers. Avid Brothers, right? right? So she's like, she's like, you like the Avid Brothers? I'm like, mm. yeah, I like the Avid Brothers. And she, and this is a woke woman. She has done a lot of spiritual work, teaches yoga, teaches, you know, travels all around the world, right? And she asked me, she could, still couldn't, she could not take her mind off of the box of this is a black man from the South Side and the South Burbs who's listening to an all white folk group. Actually, their, their um, bass player, he's, he's Asian. Okay. But <laughs> just, but she couldn't, she, and, and she's a woke woman. She, yet she still cannot see, she couldn't see Charles in that moment. She's just, just like, this doesn't match. Why is a black box. man? Why I can't, yeah, I'm out of the box. Yeah. Right. And we do that all the damn time. Right. Black people do it to black people. Black people do it to white people. White people do it to black people. Asians do it to white people and black people. Yeah. We, everyone's walking around with preconceived notions and these glasses that they're they're not you know they're colored with whatever's on their mind or whatever their beliefs are yeah yeah and it's sad Mm. because it's not giving you the freedom to be who you are yeah there's that word freedom again and um yeah i I hear you have found your freedom hell yeah hell yeah hell yeah You know, when I hear a black person say, I feel free, yeah, that means something to me. Yes. Yes, it does. It means something to me, too. It means that I no longer have to live in the, the, the morals and codes and the, the policies and the, the way I should be, should be, or, you know, Josh, when I was in the sixth or seventh grade, a guy named Roger Grossnickel, he's passed away, God bless him. He was a athletic coach and he was a bodybuilder and he said, Charles, when you speak, you wanna say yes, you don't wanna say yeah. And he would give me all these other little life lessons because I internalized it as he thought my dad wasn't doing it right, mm. right? or my dad didn't have the right tools mm-hmm. to teach a black boy how to assimilate into a white world. Well, if I say fucking yeah, I say fucking yeah, mm. right? Mm. Yeah, gross nickel. <laughs> I don't have to say yes. Mm. Sure, King's English is great. Proper English is great. But my dialect is my dialect, right? How I, where I grew up from, where I say, and I'll give you another story around that. So this is part of my journey. Mm-hmm. I remember the time 
in the fourth in the, in I was a high school actually it was high school in my freshman year of high school a guy named Buck I won't even say his uh, he we call him Bucky so we'll just call him Buck and he made fun of me because he's like Chuck I go by Chuck or Charles he says Chuck what time is it I say it's four o'clock mm. say four o'clock four o'clock I said yes yeah, four o'clock he says. And he made fun of me, and I was so mortified. I was embarrassed. I was like, oh, here I am at this white school. My blackness is coming out because I don't say the King's English four o'clock. Mm-hmm. I say foe, mm-hmm. right? And here's how profound racism is. That night, Josh, I went home, and I said four about 100 times before I went to sleep. Mm. And in that moment, I had decided that I was going to speak the king's English language. I was going to enunciate and pronounce and use grammar to the best of my ability mm. so that a white man couldn't mm-hmm. call me out for, you know, the words I pronounce, mm. the, the, the grammar. I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. It was. It was, and these are the things that so, we so don't realize. Chuck, what, what, what feelings come up now when you share that story? Sadness. Yeah. Sad that my friend, and he was a great guy. I love Bucky. He was a great guy. Um, I see him on social media. He's got a family, beautiful family out in, in California, and but it made me sad that I would have to. That I didn't use the right, I didn't say for, and I got made fun of for it, you know. And I'm a, I'm a, I mean, let's be, I'm a sensitive person. I realize that. And I'm, and 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 by the way, it's okay to be sensitive. It's just I don't want to internalize anymore as that I'm not worthy, mm. because that, in the bigger, we just to back up about this resentment towards God that he would make white people worthy and all the rest of us were not worthy. Yeah. That's one of the resentments. Like how the fuck did you make everybody else worthy and you didn't make us worthy? <laughs> do you, you know? do you carry internalized depression? Internalized oppression? Yeah. Absolutely. Do you still carry that with you? Um I think I think it's a it's a it's a condition that I'm slowly growing out of. You're slowly growing out. Of yeah, it. I yeah. think MKP Mankind Project yeah. was the starting point yeah. of moving away from this internalized oppression to the freedom that I have been experiencing. What What remains with you of that internalized oppression today? Um, my friend asking me that question about the music. Right? It's okay. like I, it, when when they say it, I instantly get triggered. Like. Oh fuck! I'm supposed to not be listening to the Avid Brothers, mm. or this. I'm um, in this. This and and I trust me. I, I. So people, you know, you do, you do your work, whatever it is. Meet with your therapists and and or you do these weekends. And I don't think we ever. I don't. And shadow will always exist for us. I believe personally. Um, and what I mean by that, things we want to repress or deny, mm-hmm. even if I've been healed around it. Because I, I guess my point is. In my estimation, Josh, I believe that scabs can be picked at, even if it's healed sometimes. And my friend bringing that up last weekend, she picked at it, uh-huh. and and I was like, "Ooh, yeah. I got a little, I got a little triggered around yeah. it." Yeah. Now, 
I didn't. I mean, I'm not mad at her. I'm not resenting her. I actually called her this week and we chatted, and, and you know, like things are fine. Like I didn't walk around with resentment. So the, I guess what I'm trying to say is the internalized oppression can get triggered by events or things that are said, and I have to keep doing my work. Got it. Does that make sense? Sure does, Charles. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, I got one more question or set of questions for you, and then uh, we'll take a look at the objects that you brought sure. to, to, the, to the meeting. So I had to ask Charles to bring a few objects, or one, one object. I brought three. Charles brought three. <laughs> uh, sure. Um, but we, we were at a, a, a um, we were somewhere together this summer. Yes. They had some intense dynamics around race. That's correct. And um, can you share a little bit about what, what that was like for you? And, and um what came from that for sure, you? Sure, sure. Well, we had um, a facilitator lead a conversation around race, and it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my entire life. So what, you know, who, who was there, and what was the conversation about? Um, this amazing man named Brodigy. Uh-huh. G, we call him. G. G. Uh-huh. He led or facilitated this conversation, and it had to do with um, essentially a white person in the group dismissing another white person, and then that conversation being about racism. It, it just kind of bloomed from it, it blossomed from there, and it was amazing, right? And what I will say, what was amazing about it was that it got us to look at how white people dismiss not only other people, but African-Americans and how African-Americans internalized or felt about it. And so we were able to share our feelings and talk openly about our struggle, being oppressed, conscious or unconscious. And the white people that were there were able to truly share from their vantage point their struggle of how unconscious they have how how unconscious their white privilege allows them mm. to be white. So what were what were some of the feelings that were shared by the black men? The feelings that were shared by the black women was anger. Yeah. Resentment. Fear. Yeah. Sadness. Yeah. Deep sadness. Mm. Um Do you remember some of the comments that were made? Yeah. I my comment was quit 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 killing our little black boys. Quit killing our little black boys. That I held a prayer visual after the um, the gentleman who was in the car with his girlfriend and the baby in back was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Philander yeah. Castro, I feel, Castile. Castile, yep. Castile, beg your pardon. Um, I had a, I held a prayer visual in the western suburbs, <laughs> and it was a handful of black people and then mostly white friends of mine. But they came out to pray. Over our nation because I was so shook by that, mm. and the other, you know, the Trayvon Martins and the um, the Rice kid and all these African American kids who've been killed or African American men, and because and because even though it took thirty three years for me to experience that kind of bias, that kind of racial racism, if you will, of the the manager calling the cop just because I'm black, mm-hmm. I felt it throughout all of these stories after that that was 2009 and shit got worse yeah right in the last 10 years it's gotten worse 
than it ever was in my entire life and i'm yeah. 43 years old yep right that there are more blacks being killed than anyone else so how that weekend that we were talking about that that conversation rather that you know we talked about was powerful for black men to name their truth and for white men to name their truth and for us to bring about healing you know and that was that was it was it was it was as i said to you it was um I was I felt completely at home expressing my blackness mm. to white people wow. in a safe place. Wow. So you got to be black with white people and black people. Yes. And not assimilate. Not have to fucking assimilate. Not. <laughs> so there's some, there's some anger there around all the assimilation you did. I've worked hard at it. Remember at assimilating? I, at assimilating. Yeah. Remember the whole four incident? Right, I just said yes. about four. Yes, right? absolutely. And there are multiple things that I've done. You worked really hard at doing that. I, what was great about MKP for me, the Mankind Project experience that I went through in August of 2018, was I didn't have. To, I don't have to hustle anymore. Yeah, I have to hustle for your love, for the white man's love, for for anyone's love. I'm love. Yeah, God is love, and I'm love. That's powerful, brother. Yeah, yeah. That's wow. pretty great. Yeah. That's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. So um, I had asked Charles to bring an object with him. Yes. Um, what did you bring? Well, I brought three items. Okay, let's, let's, <laughs> let's check it out. Well, since we're talking about childhood, yeah. I thought about this. Okay. All right, so I brought my 1983 Hickory Bend yearbook from Glenwood, Illinois. Oh, wow. Yeah, and... And I knew what, we were going to be what, talking what about grade, what grade is that? I was in the second grade in oh 1983, 83-84. You might remember it was the San Francisco 49ers. I think that won the Super Bowl that year, I want to say. I think they won. Bears. Uh, no, I the don't. Bears won 85. <laughs> but the Bears were in the playoffs. Oh, okay. it was, I think it was Dick's second or third year. But <laughs> by the way, I don't even watch football anymore. Okay. I stopped no? watching pro football. Because? Because I was staying with Colin Kaepernick. I stand for 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 racial equality, for uh, for for police brutality to be reduced big time. So, but anyways, we're talking about bears. Um, but I was in the second grade, and I have I'm that guy. Uh, and if you look at my class again, it's pretty diverse. It's pretty diverse. I see a lot of black faces. There. So a lot of black faces. That's uh, Alex Torres, Alejandro. He goes by now. But he went by Alex. Uh-huh. He shortened it. Um, he was from Jamaica. Uh, his parents are from Jamaica. And I don't see if Bethley is on here. But this was a pretty diverse class. I mean, you had um, in my second grade class, I had, I think it was a total of 22 kids and about seven of us are black. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven of us are people of color out of 22, right? But these were the years, the formative years yeah. of where... Um, I got called these names. I got made fun mm-hmm. of, and yet I had white friends. You know, guys like Mike Barnalini, who I played baseball with, and Duran Stewart, my buddy here, Duran. Um, it's funny to see these people on Facebook nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my first object, and I just wanted to show kind of where I grew up. Thank at. you, yeah. Charles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, it's beautiful. What else you got? So I ran the 2010 marathon, ah. and I couldn't find a medal. 
But I did find my 2017 Chicago Marathon. I've run three. 2010 in Chicago, 2017. I know nuts. <laughs> I mean, that that's the uh, willpower you were talking about that's earlier. That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So I brought the 40th anniversary of the Chicago Marathon. Um, and what's great about this is this was right a year, almost 10 months before I did Mankind Project. Okay. And so what this symbolizes, I guess, if you will, or the object of it is, is that I was still hustling. Mm, for for the love for the love yeah i was still hustling you know um now i do races just because in the last year i've done a handful of races but i'm not trying to you know impress anyone or i'm not running from anyone i'm not running to anyone i'm just running because i love running it's pretty great yeah yeah so, so this is a, this is a symbol I, i'm hearing of the internalized depression you were yes carrying. yes yes so yeah. And what's great about it is I raised like $2,000 for a charity, mm. ran with my friend who she raised like $4,000 or $5,000 for a charity. So good came out of, absolutely. you know, but I don't have to run anymore. Yeah. It was just, or I don't have to prove anymore. Yeah. I can keep running, but not have to <laughs> prove it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Prove it after, I run after this dinner we had. And the last thing was, um, you're familiar with this. What is that? That is a uh, talisman from my weekend, my Mankind weekend, right? And this symbolizes the freedom and the consciousness that I am now an, a, an initiated man, a woke man, a man who, is, who has a mission, who has goals, and is free to live out that mission. It's pretty awesome. So, yeah. Thank you, Charles. You're welcome. Well, I really appreciate you coming here. You're welcome. Doing this uh, first run of uh, the the new podcast. And uh, I want to honor you for being vulnerable and sharing your story, sharing yourself. Thank you. And for all the work you've put in to become free. Thank you. Thank you. I honor you, brother. Thank you. Yeah, blessings. Blessings.